0: Welcome to Soulful Insights, conversations exploring the synergy of psychology, emotion and spirit. I'm Ruth Caterellis, psychologist, writer and performer.
1: And I'm Rebecca Harris, author, psychotherapist and educational consultant. These conversations are based on our studies, observations and personal experiences. Take what resonates, leave the rest.
0: Welcome to Soulful Insights, conversations exploring the synergy of psychology, emotion and spirit. I'm Ruth Kateralis, psychologist, writer and performer.
1: And I'm Rebecca Harris, author, psychotherapist and educational consultant. These conversations are based on our studies, observations and personal experiences. Take what resonates, leave the rest.
0: Welcome to this episode of Soulful Insights. We'd like to acknowledge the original custodians of the land on which we're recording today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects to Elders past and present. We'd also like to acknowledge that this land was never ceded. So, Beck, today we decided that we were going to have a conversation about love.
1: Indeed,
0: about love. What is it? I'm reminded of the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think the final line of that song is love is all there is.
1: Yeah. Is that true? Is love all you need? Is it something that you, that is essential?
0: I think absolutely. I think so too. (laughs) (laughs) I heard somebody say the other day um, on a meditation tape that I was doing actually that said love is the only thing that is forever. Mm. And I think that's interesting. I mean fear, hate, contempt some of those other more restrictive emotions, hopefully they don't last forever.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, you use the term expansive about emotion, don't you? And love seems like something that um, goes well with that word expansive.
0: I tend to think that there are really only two core emotions, love and fear. Mm. And all of the expansive ones come out of love and all of the restrictive have their basis or their origins in fear. mm So
1: thinking about therapy and what brings people to therapy and when clients are sitting there in the room with you, how often is it that they're sitting there because of something to do with love?
0: Or absence thereof. Yes. I think pretty well always. Mm. Trying to find a, a way back to love sometimes in relationships, trying to find a way to love the self, trying to operate in the world in a way that feels more loving, more open, more generous. Because love is a state of being, isn't it, that is, when we touch it, when we experience it, we know it. Mm. I don't know if we always recognise the absence of it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because it is something that as, um, as a feeling or an emotion, like it has that sense of like coming home or something. It's very right? But how do we learn how to be loved? How do we learn how to love? Is it something that's inherent? Is it something that we can or can't do? Or
0: And I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is an inherent state that we are born with. You know, the natural inclination of a baby is to love. It wants to engage. It wants to be there and be received in a way that's warm and welcoming. And it wants to smile and and, and reach out. But we learn how to love by the way we are loved as kids and therein lies the problem often Mm. because we're often raised by people who haven't been taught how to love, whatever that means. And so often we learn that love has a component of manipulation about it or displeasure associated with it. If you do what I want you to do, then I'll love you, but if not, I'll withdraw that love, that affection, mm. that connection. And so I think we are often raised by people who, because they've been raised by people who, who have been raised the by people who. who, we learn love that is, that takes it away from that purity maybe that we're born with, which is part of spirit, I think.
1: Yeah. I think when we're considering that, I guess, original experience of love, which is perhaps that parent-child experience that depending on circumstance and privilege and reflecting on looking back through history that loss has been such a theme with having children too. That in order to protect from loss, love is something that um, you might want to tuck away and not experience so much. So I just, yeah, have a a reflection on that as I think about going back through generations too and what yeah, what it must have been like for parents who could rightly expect to lose a number of children that they were having too, what that must do to that experience. Yeah, as absolutely. A, yeah. But perhaps living with um in a safe place with lots of privilege, we can have the expectation that we can love our children expansively and not fear
0: the loss? I think that loving, being prepared to love comes with a sense of loss. And the more we love, the more that sense of loss grows. But I think it's how we manage that. I mean, I think you're right. There are places in the world at the moment where people are losing people that they love right now. And it's hard on the other side of the world to We're talking, I guess, here about ideals, you know, um, in lots of ways, which is not the reality for many people. And I think it's good to be mindful of that. Learning how to love, I think, or learning to be in a state of love is something that we do all our lives. I think we are constantly learning how to love, how to love better, how to love more. And some of that also is about compassion for people who are losing loved ones, And there's an absence of that in the world at the moment too.
1: Yeah, well, love and compassion are related, aren't they? Love, compassion, care,
0: respect, regard.
1: Mm. And that the link between love and fear is just so strong that learning to love in that expansive way requires perhaps a, a willingness to face the fear of loss.
0: I think in lots of ways it's about trying to not allow that fear of loss to impact the way you love.
1: Exactly.
0: And that's the tricky one, I think, that takes a lot of focus because, you know, as parents, sometimes when we love our kids, the fear infects the love so that that love does not feel like love, that feels like control, it feels like domination, it feels like power over as opposed to allowing a young person to evolve into who they are.
1: Absolutely. I have, you know, such a a strong memory of multiple times of feeling that sense of fear that harm will come to one of my children and being really hyper aware of it and aware of just needing to Except that that's part of it, but not follow that, not follow that line, not follow that line of thought or feeling, because it's not it doesn't help anyone, and it doesn't allow for what is necessary, which is to let our children and young people be who they are in the world and explore and take risks. But yeah, such a strong physical memory of feeling that.
0: And I think it's a hard one as parents because We also get messages about what our kids are supposed to be or how we're supposed to love. You know, love looks like this. It looks like making sure your young person goes to school, making sure they're dressed in a particular way, making sure that they are behaving in a particular way. And then we got a question, is that what love is? I mean, you were talking before historically about people losing children, The old adage that children should be seen and not heard is absolutely not about loving kids. It was about somehow they are less than, therefore they don't know, therefore until they do know, they should be silent. Hopefully we don't think that way these days.
1: Well, true. And even uh, just that idea that we can control expressions of love and other big feelings too, like, you know, historically when there was a stillbirth baby was whisked away and it was everyone just pretended it didn't happen or if a child lost a parent, they weren't participating, well, certainly in in some cultures anyway, in the rituals around love and loss. So it is interesting, that idea of the way we do make children uh, smaller than us in our feelings for them and their feelings for us. And smaller and, and and,
0: and less than. Yeah. You know, what you were just saying then uh, makes me think about one of the qualities of love, which is the ability to respond. Mm. You know, it's to be able to be responsive to somebody, which is different to reactive to them. But, you know, if a young person or an older person or any person has an issue, how do I respond to that? Do I respond from a place of openness and compassion or do I become reactive and defensive, which is my fear-based response? So there are lots of qualities and ways in which we can love that create a space for a person to be more of who they are, which I think is ultimately the the journey.
1: Um, Yeah. And I think, you, you know, control is one of the other things too, even with good intentions for anyone who likes to fix things for people or, you know, jump in and solve a problem or come up with a solution That is another way of not allowing that person to have their experience.
0: And especially if there's then a judgment, well, I came up with a solution, why aren't you following it? (laughs) Yeah. So yes, allowing people the space to find their own solutions or checking in with what they need. When we come back to the notion of therapy and the question about what is a client needing in relation to love That might be something that a therapist can have an idea about, but we can't know. Mm. Not exactly. So that's where you hopefully come in with that sense of curiosity around what are you looking for, what doesn't feel okay, what would feel better, you know, where is it that you're wanting to move to? Because I think when we're in a state of love, it feels good. Mm. We feel connected. And so coming back to that question Love is the kind of end result and the process all in one. Mm. You know, how do we get closer to being loving, to connecting, connecting to ourselves, to loving ourselves, which allows a much more open place to be able to be receptive to other human beings?
1: Mm. Yeah, and it requires some degree of vulnerability because when we're in a state of self-protection, there's not the space there. That expansiveness isn't there. So vulnerability is, it's hard. And, you know, often I think we're programmed to self-protect, you know, bringing together those ideas of love, a sense of safety and a capacity to be vulnerable. You know, gosh, what power exists when all those things can be present in a relationship.
0: And I think that often does go back again to our childhood because in this day and age, we live very busy lives. So sometimes children might have an emotional response to something that a parent feels like they haven't got time for, or why are you reacting like that, or you're okay. And that doesn't allow the space to be vulnerable. And loving does, or or ideally, I really resist the word should, but I'm going to use it now, Hmm. I think really should provide a, a space wherein a person can feel vulnerable But if we're being told that we shouldn't be feeling what we are feeling or that our reaction to something isn't right or it's too big or it's too small or it's not enough, then that does not foster a feeling that it's safe to be vulnerable. Mm. And so in, in those moments, that's not love. And it's not necessarily the opposite of love, no. (laughs) but it's not in those moments being in a state where you are being loving because you're impatient or because you're frustrated. And those things take us out of that space. I mean, rushing takes us out of that space. Mm. Living a big, busy life takes us out of that space because we find ourselves much more on an automatic pilot.
1: Yeah. And I think the word that you used before about responding, you know, there's something in that that is gentle and You know, I remember years and years ago when you said something to me when I was finding it difficult working with children who are experiencing a lot of trauma. And I can't remember what you said exactly, but it was something along the lines of, you know, that they're living their life too. And that when we have respect and care and compassion for people, we don't want to change their lives or change their experiences. And that to me is about how do I respond and I take away my fixing approach, which is a natural one that I do need to to, um, dampen down sometimes. And instead, you know, the phrase I use a lot is walk alongside, like how do we in a role as a therapist or in other roles like a teacher or a parent, how do we walk alongside and bring our love, our compassion, our care, whatever word you want to use, rather than our reactivity, whether that's with beautiful intention or not. You know that to me sort of is a is a space where love can exist.
0: That's where it becomes really important to check our own fear. And I mean I know I do it with my kids in relation to food. <laughs> It's like, have you eaten? Have you eaten enough? Are you sure? I mean, have one young person who isn't athlete, so food is so important to her body, and another young person who forgets, a bit like I do sometimes, forgets to eat. And so I'm aware sometimes, and I just say to myself quietly, just shut up, Ruth. Sometimes I get lost in the, yeah, but have you? And so that's also the way we need to be kind to ourselves and just go, all right, I've got this thing that I do that maybe I learned from my family and I don't have to beat myself up about it, but it's really important to be conscious of it. And my kids are pretty good about just going, back off. <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay, yep, sorry. But trying to be conscious about those things, those habits that we do have around, as you said, the, the fixing, or can I come up with a, a solution and taking responsibility for stuff that's not ours. And I think that's particularly difficult as a parent because there was a period of time, a big period of time, where you were responsible for those things. And then you've got to step back and just go, now they are a teenager, they're an adult, I have to step back until they want you to step forward. Can you make me something?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, that's an invitation and that's a bit different too. Very different. And it is absolutely the case in that, parent-child relationship, but there's something about that that also exists in our friendships and our romantic relationships too where we take something away from someone if we are trying to anticipate need and attend to need without being told (laughs) what the need is. So I think that's really common in relationships too, to try to anticipate your partner's needs and then meet those needs rather than saying... Tell me what you need, or this is what I'm sensing, am I right? It, and it's that you know rushing word again, it's busyness, it's control, it's care, but there, it is well infantilizing someone, yeah. because yeah, we do need to do it for infants. We don't need to do it for our children as they grow up, and we don't need to do it for our our friends and our partners.
0: And I think, you know, that point about asking is really important. Part of the trap, I guess, is that often as kids, again, we are talked out of asking for what we need because we're given messages about we shouldn't need, you need too much or no, don't ask for that. You can't have that. You're not allowed to have that. So we learn often that our needs are not important and not going to be met so therefore we start to learn to manipulate how do I get what I want and every human being on the planet has wants and needs so that combination of is this what you want or can I ask for what I want become really important in any loving relationship. I think so too and that
1: uh, asking for what you want knowing that you might not get it that that's okay too because I think that's something that we um can be socialized as well to to say, well, if I'm not gonna get it, I might as well not even bother asking. But stating our needs, yeah, mm. it can be really powerful. And it is, I agree, really important in that loving relationship.
0: And I think that point about not getting what I want and therefore turning that into a statement about, well, you don't love me therefore, that comes from the wounded child place, or of a better description, where I am asking you as my partner or as my friend to make up for everything that my family didn't do for me. And that's not possible. It's also not your partner's or your friend's job. And I think that's where the self-love is really important. And coming back to therapy, the clients come in looking at love, I think, every time, without exception. Even if that is my relationship with myself is full of anxiety and fear And I don't know how to sit with myself in that space or be vulnerable with myself or to stop judging myself. It also made me think about the other condition of love that I think is important is that love has to feel like love to the receiver. If it doesn't, it's not love. Mm. And that's where the asking and the being prepared to receive an answer, does this feel like love to you? Yes, no that becomes really important because otherwise it is control and control is not love.
1: Yeah, but it is so often modelled in families and then carried on in relationships so, so often.
0: And I think that's one of the reasons why relationships, you know, sometimes if I'm working with couples and they'll come in and say we're fighting all the time and part of my question is why? You know, what is the fighting about? Because usually it's I need you to see things from my perspective or I need you to do things differently, or I need you to be different. And those expectations, those desires are problematic. They're problematic when parents have expectations of us that we're going to be or do a particular thing or be a particular way. There are certain expectations that are not unreasonable, mm-hmm. but they're perhaps more about what we do than who we are.
1: Yes, and they're, they're, they're very different things. Mm. That, yeah, what we do, and there's, there's practical things that we, um, we need to do within a relationship, but that's different to, to who we are and the sense of feeling accepted for who we are and not feeling like we need to bend ourselves in a particular direction or change or hide anything to be loved.
0: And I think it's not... I'm thinking as I say this because I, I'm hoping that parenting these days is changing, But we were talking before about that notion of being known, which is another condition of love. You know, It's creating a space where the person that you're loving feels safe enough to, yes, be vulnerable, to be able to talk about their strengths and their weaknesses, to be able to be known. And it's not something that perhaps many of our generation, at least, and I mean, we're a slightly different generation, I'm a bit older than you, but our generation's I don't believe, really did experience, it's not something our parents experienced. There is that question about how do you pass on to somebody something that you haven't experienced?
1: That's right, yeah, that is, that's such a big one because you can have a sense of wanting to do things differently without a model for it except different, (laughs) which, you know, isn't really a model. It's just, it's more of a kind of
0: deficit, you know. And that's a good point because sometimes if we're too different, so for example, if you've grown up in a situation where you've had boundary after boundary and you've had no freedom, which doesn't feel like love, you might parent in a way that has no boundaries, which also doesn't feel like love because it feels like lack of care. And so somewhere in there, you have to find a middle ground and that's part of the learning. I think, isn't it?
1: It is. And I think
0: getting it wrong is
1: part of the learning too. And that's, you know, so essential in relationships to have that, you know, those moments that we might call a rupture or, you know, in the therapeutic relationship, but in our relationships and with our kids as well, to have those moments where you can then recover and come back and say, all is not lost, you know, I, you apologise or you fix it or you find a way to, to explain this is what was happening for me and you come back together and that actually that's where a lot of the, that experience of safety and love happens because if there's never any ripples, you, you know, how do you actually know that you're safe
0: Really good point, and I think it's it's a little bit like they've got to be ripples, not earthquakes. Really, isn't yeah. it? Because those ripples, particularly if we're with, with caregivers who are able to move on, who don't punish, who don't withdraw, and and maybe maybe punish in a small way, which you know lets us know that we've crossed a line, but but not in a way that says I'm not speaking to you for a week, or not in a way that uses physical violence, or not in a way that's abusive then we learn that we can be forgiven and we learn self-compassion and compassion for others. But if we're with caregivers who, who do those things, then what we learn is increased shame. Yeah. And that doesn't allow us to come back easily. It means that we struggle with letting other people know us because letting other people get close becomes very threatening.
1: It's astounding, really, the way that we use punishment around behaviours that we don't like and we don't use punishment to teach a child how to cook or to teach a child maths or anything else but you know for behavioural responses which are emotional responses it does get used and yeah it's so important because of course that shame happens and that internalising of that sense of I'm bad but um But on the flip side, when we don't use punishment and with our partners as well, and, you know, shame can be brought up so quickly, can't it? So for anyone who experienced it as a child, it can come back so quickly in any kind of relationship. And um, it's such a blocker to love, particularly to self-love, that experience of
0: shame. Because the fundamental message from extreme shame is that I am not lovable. Exactly. Therefore, the capacity to love others is also diminished. And, you know, I saw something on social media was the notion that we love to the level at which we were loved. And maybe that's true to begin with, but I think it's also not good enough. I think hopefully in a lifetime, we learn to love beyond the level at which we were loved. But you don't do that by being hard on self either.
1: No. And that is perhaps one of the real gifts of therapy is learning that lesson and, and having that space where hopefully if the therapeutic relationship is strong and good that a client can learn to feel felt by another person and
0: can learn what it feels like to be vulnerable and still lovable. It's an interesting one, isn't it? That connection that you just made then between vulnerable and lovable because so often we perceive vulnerability as weakness Absolutely, and we're taught often that weakness is not lovable. Weakness, again, whatever that is. The messages that we get as kids about what's okay, what's the appropriate emotion, what you're supposed to feel, are quite strongly embed those notions of weakness and strength within us so that it does become really difficult for some people, not for some, for probably the majority of human beings on the planet to know that it's okay to be vulnerable, that there is power and strength in vulnerability.
1: Yeah, well, it's just bringing back those key things around love, safety and vulnerability, like that relationship. I mean, even just at the most basic level, the child who falls over and cries and looks to the parent and how often a parent's instinct is to say, you're okay. Clearly, it's so instinctive because it's the fixer. It's I want you to be okay, maybe is what we're trying to say. I've appreciated the the shift from um, the little call cool, that used to be you get what you get and you don't get upset used to be in, in my, my children's wow. childcare uh, centre. And we've shifted that now to um, you get what you get and you might get upset.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> and if you do, it's okay. Yeah. I got the blue icy pole and I wanted the red one.
1: It's okay to be upset actually. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But there might not be any other. There
1: might not be. That's right. Icy poles left. Yeah.
0: I remember hearing that response a lot um, with parents and kids in the playground. And you know, my response was always. I mean, I never said anything because it was not my business or my place. But kids will tell you when they're okay; they'll stop crying. Mm. And until that point, they're not okay. But kids, when we allow them to move on in a way emotionally, that Adults never do. A little person before they're, you know, 18 months, two years old babies, something happens, they explode. Every single fibre of their being is involved in that distress. And two minutes later, it's gone and they're looking for the next toy. But because we encourage the suppression of emotion, we have adults who can't move on 10 years later because we've never really allowed them the space as kids to explore that emotional range, to go, I love you whether you're angry, whether you're frustrated, whether you're hysterically laughing. I love you no matter what kind of emotional response you're having and I can sit with you in it. Yeah. Or I can take myself off into another room if it's like you're being so loud that I'm not coping. Rather than stopping you, I'm going to remove me because yeah. I'm the one who's having the issue.
1: Yeah, it is. Um- so interesting the way we you know these things that we're talking about and reflecting on the way that we respond to to little people and then what that means for us as big people and just that sense of what is it that makes me lovable or valuable i remember being when i was home perhaps not working or working part time with little kids and getting to the end of the day with a list of achievements of you know baking this and cleaning that and fixing whatever. Like that, that was something that I think perhaps in the absence of work that might've filled that role for me a bit more of like, yes, look at what I've achieved as though being present to kids is not a wonderful achievement. You know, I think it takes time to unpack some of that stuff and to, to allow just a sense of, of being worthy, worthy of love. It's what it comes down to, I'm sure just merely by
0: being. Just by being. I mean, I think, you know, the notion of being worthy and being deserving of love, there's something that I say often to clients who are in that place. And I'll just ask them a question, you know, which is a baby is born. It might be born in any country, any religion, any gender. Does it have value? And every client says, yes. And I'll go, why? Mm. What does it do? And they will talk about the potential, you know, what it could be. And then, of course, you know, they get the message. So, you know, that question and the reason we keep coming back to childhood is when do we get talked out of that? Mm-hmm. Because we arrive knowing that we have value, that we have worth, but we get talked out of it by our caregivers, by school systems to the point where often as adults, we question that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's never true because love is the truth of who we are, all of us.
1: That sense of what a wonderful life for a human to be born, knowing that they're lovable and that they love and love courses through their veins and to grow up knowing that and to never have it suppressed. How amazing would that be? Let's hope it's happening.
0: It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, from even just having said that, I also think that part of the human condition is about obstacles, (laughs) about the growth that we get through some of those challenging situations. And so, you know, maybe that's not possible. I don't know. Maybe it is. maybe Maybe it's coming. I mean, the human species is evolving. I mean, to look around the planet right at the moment is an interesting thing because there are places in the world where, particularly right now, where there is such devastation and destruction occurring, so much hate and intolerance that it's hard to look at, mm. even though I think it's important to witness. And at the same time, I think people are speaking much more about evolving, about self-love, and maybe it is that dichotomy as um, the yin and the yang, as one rises, so does the other. Mm. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things that I'm observing is that for, you know, and here we are in a different part of the world observing such horrors and what I'm observing in people, my peers sometimes, is a struggle to express or share their own experiences of love and joy in this relatively safe place that we live. And yeah, I'm just aware of that tension and that difficulty of what it is to say and to share, what, you know, what joy, what love, what what peace and safety I have in my world while watching people who are having such horrific experiences.
0: It's a challenge. I read something on Facebook that said something along the lines of while essentially while we are watching these atrocities, I don't have the right to be happy or to be comfortable. And I would argue that that's not true. And it's not a great place to come from because somebody over here suffering doesn't ease the pain or the devastation that's occurring over there. I think that there are times where we do need to bear witness and we Mm. do need to acknowledge and send what we can, whether it's compassion, whether it's money, whether it's prayer, whether it's, you know, um, marching in the street, what, whatever it is to be able to do what we can to raise our voices and go, this is not This is not right. This, what's happening is not, I mean, it's not human. It's not, mm. you know, I mean, it's human because human beings can do devastating things to other human beings, but not when they're in a state of love. I'm a fan of the notion of the drop in the ocean, that if every single human being on the planet took responsibility for their own crap, the world would be a very, very different place. So if you are struggling with what's going on, be better. (laughs) Be a, a version of yourself that you can, you know, extend the generosity, build the compassion be more loving, do what you can in terms of what, what you know, we're powerless all this way over here apart from things like donating but within our world because a war is a macrocosm of the wars sometimes that go on between us and other people and in our own heads. And so if we can stop those wars, we're a long way along the road to peace.
1: I absolutely agree and I think that is um in a way that's the call the power of bearing witness being able to have the compassion the willingness to be vulnerable in the pain that bearing witness causes and yet also the capacity to take to draw strength from the love that exists in in your world and in your life and internally I, yeah, feel that that, what a lovely, you know, I guess call to, I like that call to be better, to be, to give more love, to feel more love while bearing witness, doing all the things that we can do because love actually makes us stronger.
0: I think Maya Angelou is the person who coined the phrase, you know, do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. And I think it's powerful and I think it's, you know, hopefully in terms of human evolution, you know, which happens within a lifetime, it's happening with us as a species, hopefully we are learning how to love better self and others. But it is hard watching such an absence of love going on across the other side of the world and from both sides Mm. because the people who are being bombarded and destroyed are not being loved but there is an absence of love i think about the generations the children in both societies and just what what are the repercussions going to be there and maybe this is the thing about love too i think that's important you cannot be a perpetrator of harm and be unharmed yourself mm-hmm. And it comes back to that thing that we were talking about, about connection. We are all connected. So if you love, if you are able to be in a state of loving, you get back. It's a glorious feeling and you receive that. But if you do harm, deliberate harm, you are harmed in the process of yes. that. There is no escape.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the opposite of giving love, receiving
0: love. So how do we create in our relationships a predominance of love? Mm. I think
1: what we've identified is that with love comes vulnerability. So a willingness to be vulnerable and a willingness to potentially be exposed to hurt and loss is really important. And part of vulnerability in relationships is stating needs and wants and desires, knowing that they might not get met and that I guess that is vulnerability and honesty sort of hand in hand there Um, and it can be really difficult but I feel like that's really essential when it comes to calling in more
0: love and loving relationships. I think it's also about responsibility, which is about the ability to respond and to be responsible for what you bring into a space or what you bring into a dynamic. And that's different, I think, than taking responsibility for somebody else, which is kind of, you know, moving again into control area. But how am I being responsible for me and my my presence and what I am what I'm offering to this relationship or this dynamic. And if I'm not offering something that actually is feeling good, how do I change that? It also makes me think about the ego because the negative ego, in particular, its focus is fear. The negative ego doesn't want to be left out, it doesn't want to be one down, it doesn't want to be wrong, it doesn't want to be in a state of powerlessness. And it's often that voice that we have to battle in relationships. You know, what are the games I'm playing? Where's my manipulation? Am I being a martyr right now? Am I feeling sorry for myself? You know, what am I, what am I adding? So how do I recognise that, recognise what I'm bringing in? And how do I bring in the more of me, the, the loving part of me, the part that says, I'm not going to play that game anymore. I'm not going to bring that poison in. I'm not going to do that thing that I have done for years or that I tried last time and kind of worked for me, but it didn't feel so great. How do I do it differently?
1: Yeah. And, you know, that that ego response, like so many responses are sort of aimed at being protective, but, you know, that's perhaps a way that we can be vulnerable with ourselves to be able to say, I hear you. I don't need that. I don't
0: need that. And that's the voice of the nurturing parent or the, the positive ego, mm. which kind of goes, mm, you're doing that thing. <laughs> do you want to keep doing that thing? Mm. Is it really working for you or do you want to do something else? Let's try something different.
1: Well, that's the journey, isn't it? And that's a journey that often I think therapeutic relationship can help with that little bit of distance and that little bit of curiosity and questioning in that non-judgment way that we can then learn to do for ourselves and have that... Um, hopefully curious non-judgmental inner voice as well
0: so there we go there's love. The, the journey to love <laughs> so we started with the notion of all you need is love and love is all there is what do you think
1: i would say that love is inherent essential a journey and always exists but is always a work in progress too completely
0: agree with love, over and out. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Soulful Insights. Follow us for more content and feel free to reach out and let us know if there's anything you'd like to hear on a future episode.